chapter 14. We are continuing our series through the Gospel of Matthew. This is message number 35 now in that series entitled Killing John. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 12, and so I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 here in chapter 14 to get started. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus and said unto his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. So population growth is calculated by uh, a mathematical model. Uh, It's a mathematical model of an exponential function. Uh, It's plotted on a graph in what I think is a J-curve, so it, it starts out and is just sort of slowly climbing, and then it reaches a, uh, a real uh, near-vertical rapid increase, and that's you know just the, the nature of, of those type of calculations. But such calculations that they use for populations are not exact in, in the sense that we probably think of exactness. So for instance, if you've ever been uh, to some sort of a get-together and, and um, they were giving away a prize, if, if you could guess how many M&Ms were in a jar, for instance, um, and maybe some of you have, have been at that and experienced that, maybe you've won, I don't know. But if you had a few pieces of information about M&Ms and about the jar, you could actually calculate um, relatively closely how many M&Ms would go in that jar. So if you knew, for instance, the volume of the jar, if you knew the mass of an M&M, which is fairly, uh, fairly regular and, and can be found, and then you also knew the packing ratio, which is the, the tendency that they have to you know, sit together and fit together and all that sort of thing. So if you knew that, that information, you could calculate that a one-quart jar would hold 1,011 M&Ms. And a gallon jar would hold 4,077 M&Ms. Now, if you actually fill up some sort of a gallon jar with M&Ms, you'll probably find that it ended up holding right around 4,000, maybe slightly less, 3,998 or something like that. So my my point is that when you account for certain uh, uncertainties, such calculations can provide fairly reliable estimates. Now, November the 15th, 2022, it is the day that is officially um, recorded that the Earth's population reached 8 billion people. Now, this is quite an increase considering that at the beginning of the 90s, we were at just over 5 billion people on the earth. And so if you keep sort of tracing back, you go back to the early, very early 1800s, and the population on the earth was about 1 billion people. So it took about 200 years to go from 1 billion people on the planet to 8 billion people on the planet. But if you keep going back, you'll find that it took around 600 years to go to get to that 1 billion mark from 500 million. You keep going back and and the models estimate that the earth's population in the first century 
was somewhere around 200 to 300 million people. All right, now why am I talking about this? Well, I wanted to explain just a little bit about how we arrive at, at those sort of figures so that we understand they're not as exact as, as sort of as we think in terms of exactness, but they are reasonably reliable um, mathematical models. In other words, it's not just guesses in the dark um, when you look at historic population levels um, of the earth. Now, so that means in the first century, when Jesus walked in Galilee, and when he addressed those crowds in Galilee, there were somewhere around 200 to 300 million people on the earth, which is a little less than the current population of the United States, just to sort of give you an idea of how many people. But, of course, that's spread out over the entire planet. Now, the other reason why I'm talking about this is that I, I want us to get the significance of what we just saw in Matthew chapter 13. So in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus was teaching and he began teaching in parables. And in fact, Matthew notes that when he spoke to the crowds, he only spoke to them in parables during this um, portion of teaching. He did explain parables, but never to the crowds, only to his apostles privately in the house. So Matthew 13 tells us about Jesus teaching in these parables and also tells us that Jesus in these parables is revealing truth that had been hidden from the time of the creation until then. So that means no matter what the population of the earth was, for thousands of years from the time of the creation, there were no human beings on the planet that knew what Jesus revealed in the first century in Galilee that Matthew records in Matthew chapter 13. And when Jesus revealed what was unknown for all this time prior among human beings on the earth, he did not reveal it to 200 or 300 million people. He didn't reveal it to 200 people. He revealed it only to 12 men that he had chosen to be his apostles. Now, he explained in Matthew 13 that the reason he was speaking to those crowds in parables was to conceal from everyone else, but especially that generation of Israel who rejected him, and to reveal this truth only to his apostles. So think about that. At the time that Jesus spoke those words that are recorded in Matthew chapter 13, there were 12 men on the planet out of 200 to 300 million people who knew this revelation that had been hidden from the creation. Well, that sounds pretty significant. So why did he reveal this to his apostles? Well, he revealed this to his apostles to fulfill their office by teaching others 
the new things that Jesus revealed to them along with the old things that had been revealed to the prophets before them. And of course, the result of that is the written New Testament that we are studying today. So yes, these things have been written down. They have been now made available generally to anyone uh, who picks up a Bible and reads it, hears it read, hears it, hears it taught. Any, anyone has access to this. But when Jesus spoke it, only those 12 he had chosen to be his apostles out of everybody on the earth, only they were given this revelation and it was hidden from everyone else. Well, chapter 13 that we finished the last time continued to develop this theme of rejection, the rejection of Jesus by that generation of Israel in particular. And the parables explained the response of that generation of Israel to that generation to whom the Messiah came, their response to Jesus as the Christ. And even though there are still at this point large crowds that are following Jesus around, they were mainly unbelieving. And the leaders of Israel were also conspiring and counseling together about how to destroy him. And we saw that especially in chapters 11 and 12 leading up to 13. Now the parables in Matthew 13 all, all centered around the mystery of the kingdom. That that had not been revealed from the creation until that very time. The parables all had some time element to them. And the time element in all of these parables, when when we consider them all together, it reflects a delay or a period of waiting. So this revelation that had been kept hidden all that time until Jesus revealed it to only his apostles is that the kingdom would not come with the first coming of Jesus into the world, but rather there would be an age that would be between his first coming and his return when the kingdom would be established on the earth. Now this was something obviously not revealed to John the Baptist as he was in prison, and he was puzzling over why that that judgment that had been prophesied by the prophets in the Old Testament, that judgment that precedes the establishment of the kingdom, why had that judgment not begun? And he sends those, those disciples and they ask Jesus that question. And we see that John was rejected and Jesus was facing growing rejection. In other words, it, it doesn't look like what you would expect if the coming of the, of, of the Messiah into the world meant the coming of the kingdom right then. It just did not look like what you would expect. And so John was asking these questions, and John was rejected, and Jesus was facing growing rejection. And then Matthew adds this little episode in Nazareth right at the end of chapter 13, and he's reinforcing the rejection of Jesus, and he's foreshadowing what is to come in the life and ministry of Jesus as well. And that brings us now to chapter 14. And the beginning of chapter 14 gives us the the resolution of the John story in the gospel of Matthew. Now, John first appears back in chapter number 3. 
And we get this snapshot of John and his ministry is given. But, but by early in chapter 4, we're told that John had already been put into prison. So he came preaching repentance. He came preaching that the kingdom was at hand. He came preaching that judgment was coming while also dipping people, baptizing them in water to prepare them for the Messiah. Now, Jesus later in in chapter 11 gave an explanation of John's ministry as John being the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He was the greatest because he actually saw the Messiah, not, not, not just in a vision uh, or, or a dream or in some sort of symbol. He actually saw the Messiah in flesh and blood on the earth. And also, he saw the kingdom nearer than it had ever been. But Jesus also showed that those who will one day enter into the kingdom in their mortal bodies are greater than John. Because they will actually see and experience the kingdom, the fulfillment of so many prophecies and the hopes of Israel and of the nations. Now, the greatness of John and his ministry was certainly not recognized by everyone. Remember that John had been thrown into prison. And now, Matthew gives us an account that sort of gives us the rest of that story with this historical flashback to John's execution by beheading. So Matthew, in in the beginning here of chapter 14, he he ties off this John story, and he also sets us up for what is to come in the rest of the gospel account. He draws some parallels between John and Jesus to foreshadow the death of Jesus. So as we look at this first 12 verses here in chapter 14, we want to take this account in in two parts. So uh, in verses 1 to 5, Matthew gives us the account of John being arrested And in verses 6 to 12, he gives us the account of John being beheaded. So John was arrested and put into prison, and then later he was executed by beheading. And so he gives us that in these two steps. So we're going to start with the first uh, and and the uh, imprisonment of John. So let's begin here with verse number 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus. Now, Herod, who is referred to here, um, is Herod Antipas. Uh, He is a son of Herod the Great, Herod the Great um, being the king uh, there at the time that Jesus was born. Herod the Great was the one that ordered the slaughter of the male infants in in an effort to destroy Jesus. Uh, That was given to us back in Matthew chapter 2, verses 7 to 16. Now, the Herod family were Edomaeans, and and that means that they were Edomites. They were descendants of Esau. And so there were perennial enemies um, and opponents of Israel who were the descendants of Jacob. Now, somewhere back in, in the Herod's family history, they had actually converted to Judaism. And Herod the Great, in fact, was instrumental in coordinating the renovations of the Second Temple in Jerusalem during, during his time. So by the time of the New Testament, the family of the, of the Herods was, uh, was really more political than they were religious, and they were still quite influenced by paganism. But when Herod the Great died, his large territory that, that he had governed was divided into four. So it's, it's divided into quarters, 
and his son, Herod Antipas, received one of those quarters, and that's why it's referred to as the tetrarchy. That's essentially what that word means, a quarter. It was divided into, into a quarter, and he received uh, the tetrarchy of Galilee and Perea. And his capital was Tiberias on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, not too awful far from Capernaum. Now, we're told that this Herod Antipas had heard of the ministry of Jesus. So apparently he hadn't personally seen Jesus at at this point, um, but he had heard of the ministry of Jesus because of his fame. And, And that essentially means that word had spread all throughout that region about the works and the words, the the doings of Jesus Christ. And that reminds us, once again, that still at this point, Jesus was essentially in the popularity phase of his ministry, though that is is quickly um, decreasing, quickly changing um, at this point. Look at verse number two. And said unto his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. And therefore, mighty works do show forth themselves in him. So Matthew is focusing here on Herod Antipas' response to hearing about Jesus. And he feared that that Jesus was actually John resurrected. And this is why he had such power to work miracles. And when you think about the power that Jesus had, the miracles that, that he worked is completely unprecedented. Yes, you can go back into the Old Testament history and you can see um, some prophets, even Moses, take of Moses, and we can see some pretty, um, pretty impressive miracles during the time of Moses. But on the, for as far as the scale, the magnitude, and, and the quantity of the miracles that Jesus was working in such a short amount of time, nothing even close to that had been known in the history of the world from the time of creation. And so one of the, the, one of the things that we've already seen is how among the people of Israel, they were debating about how did Jesus have this power. Now the crowds in general, they're sort of questioning, could this be the son of David? Maybe this is the son of David. The Pharisees had already decided, remember they blasphemed the Holy Spirit by saying, no, it's the power of Satan that's empowering him to do the mighty works that, that he's doing. And now we get Herod Antipas, which is more, more political, more secular, and, and he's thinking, this is John the Baptist resurrected. And, and that, of course, could be quite reflective of a guilty conscience um, that he had because he did have the murder of John on his hands. In Nazareth that we saw right at the end of chapter number 13, though, Matthew noted how that the Nazarenes dealt with that particular question of Jesus and the great signs that he worked. And so they didn't deny the authenticity of these mirrors, that Jesus was really doing these things. They didn't deny that. But they despised him. In other words, he, he, was, a, he was a commoner from Nazareth. He, he was the carpenter's son you know, we know his, his mom and his sisters and his, and, his, and his brothers. We know this family. So he, they despised Jesus. So it wasn't that they denied that great power, but rather they just questioned, how could it be possible that he is the one that is doing this? How could he have such power? So now when we take these accounts together, it, it, it prepares us for what is to come in Matthew's gospel 
as the exact identity of Jesus becomes more and more disputed among the crowds, and he actually reveals more uh, about his identity to his apostles as we go forward in this gospel. And we know it's not too long before Jesus actually begins to talk to his apostles about his upcoming death. Verse number three. For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. So now Matthew is explaining here, and this sort of starts this historical flashback um, as Matthew is explaining how that John had come to be in prison. So Herod had put John in prison, and we're told that it was because of his current wife, his wife at the time, Herodias. Now, the Herod family is probably best described as a very tangled web. Um, And as difficult as it might be to model populations with mathematical models, I don't think that there's any mathematical model that could be used um, to model the family of the Herods. So Herod the Great had multiple wives. And what that means is, is that Herod Antipas had half-brothers and half-sisters from different mothers, the wives of Herod the Great that were not his mother, who was also a wife of Herod the Great. So his half-brother, Philip, who is mentioned here, was married to Herodias. And Antipas was initially married um, to the the daughter of the the Petran king, um, um, Aretas IV. So Antipas and Herodias, who was the, the wife of Philip, Uh, they became involved, and she divorced Philip, and Antipas divorced his wife so that they could marry each other. Now, further complicating the matter, Herodias was the daughter of Aristobulus, who was a half-brother to Philip and a half-brother to Antipas. So they were all three sons of Herod the Great, But they all three had different mothers who were wives of Herod the Great. So Philip initially had married his niece. And Antipas had divorced his wife to marry his divorced sister-in-law and also his niece. Now, we're going to get a little more into that in in just a little bit. But that sort of lets you know where we are at this point with um, Antipas and Herodias. Now... Mark notes that Herodias wanted John killed. That's in Mark chapter 6 and verse 15. And Mark actually, in Mark 6, gives a longer account. Matthew's is a little bit more condensed, and then Luke's is is very much condensed, uh, although they all do speak of this event. So Herodias wanted John killed, but Antipas was actually afraid to go that far um, because of, of public opinion. And he imprisoned John instead. And Matthew has twice before this referred to John being in prison. Again, back in chapter 4 and verse 12, and a little more recently in chapter 11 and verse 2, when John was in prison and his disciples came to ask Jesus those questions that we looked at. Let's look at verse 4. For John said unto him, It is not lawful for thee to have her. Now the reason for their hostility toward John was because of his preaching. John told Herod Antipas that it was unlawful for him to marry his brother's wife. 
Well, there, this marriage, according to the old covenant law, was, was considered incestuous and adulterous, and it was prohibited. So passages like Leviticus chapter 18 and verse number 16, uh, Leviticus chapter 20 and, and verse number um, 21. Obviously, there, you know, to marry your brother's wife, there was only that one exception that the strange leveret uh, marriage, if, if your brother had married but had died childless, um, then you were to raise up seed. But that really had more to do with inheritance and, and distribution of inheritance uh, and, and, and such than, than anything. But that was sort of a, of a very odd exception situation. And that was not the case here. So John was obviously holding Herod Antipas and his family, of which Herodias was a part even before they were married. Um, John was obviously holding them to their family's prior conversion to Judaism. And he was saying that this is unlawful, what you have done. Now, we know from other accounts uh, that Herod went out to hear John on different occasions. And the language that's used to describe John's rebuke of Herod Antipas indicates that this was something he continued to say to Herod Antipas. And, and it goes right, right along as we've seen examples uh, in, in Luke 3 and uh, in, in Matthew as well of, of John preaching that message of repentance. And we have some, some examples of, of him being very specific. And this is, this is one of those cases. Verse number 5. And when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him, that's John, as a prophet. So Herod, Herod also wanted to kill John, maybe not as much as, as his wife Herodias, but he was restrained from killing John because it was politically problematic for him to do so. He knew that there were many in Israel that had a high opinion of John, had a high view of John. They believed John to be a prophet. Now, that means that they believed that John was a man that God had sent to them with words for Israel. That's what they believed about John. Now, even when you take the different accounts of John, you can see how they disputed just what sort of prophet that John was, but they did hold him to be a prophet. And Jesus actually confirmed this back in chapter 11 uh, and in verse 9 when he was talking to the crowd about them going out into the desert to see a prophet. That's, that's why they went out there, but of course he's telling them he's much more than just a, just a prophet, and he goes on um, talking about that. But it's clear that Herod was willing to kill John, but he just needed an expedient circumstance to be able to to do so, one that was not going to affect him negatively in terms of his career and, and his um, profession. Well, let me get to the second part. So Matthew has explained how that John came to be in prison. And then in verses 6 to 12 is where we get the account of, of John actually being beheaded. So verse number 6, But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. So Matthew is now turning to how John was killed, and this occasion was the birthday of Herod Antipas. And according to Mark, who gives some more uh, details about this, the birthday celebration was this large banquet um, that Herod Antipas held. 
And it featured, um, as Mark lists, many important men in Galilee, uh, those important politically and, and militarily and, and economically. So there were, there were lords that were listed as being there. Um, these were high-ranking government officials. There were high captains. Uh, these were military commanders of, of a 1,000 soldiers. There were chief men which refers to important social leaders in the region, could be important um, businessmen and, and, and such, but they're important social leaders. So he's, he's having a gathering of, of important people. It's sort of a who's who in Galilee um, that is going to be at this um, birthday celebration. And here we read about the daughter of Herodias. Her name was um, Salome. And Salome was actually the daughter of Herodias and Philip. Now, now remember, Herodias and um, Antipas' half-brother Philip was, um, was married prior to this, and she was their daughter. This means that her relationship to Antipas was that she was, first of all, his niece. She was also his cousin, and then she became his stepdaughter. Um, by his marriage to Herodias, her mother. She would later also become his sister-in-law because she married one of her uncles, uh, a half-brother to her brother Philip and to her stepfather Antipas. So again, just, just another bit of an idea of, of what a tangled mess that this family really was. Now, according to historical accounts, she was a, a probably in her early teens um, at, 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 at least at, at this time. And we read of how that she entertained Antipas and the men that were at this feast. And the language indicates she's dancing suggestively in, in, in some manner. And this performance excited um, Herod. And we read in verse number 7, whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. So the extent of his excitement is um, demonstrated by this offer that he makes. He was moved to vow to give her anything that she wanted, essentially as a reward or, or gift, which was made in the presence of many important witnesses. Verse number 8, And she, being before instructed of her mother, said, Give me here John Baptist's head in a charger. So given the opportunity, her mother Herodias instructed her to ask for the head of John the baptizer on a platter, some sort of a large dish or could, could have even been some plank of wood that could have been used for serving um, food or, or, or what have you. And the way that she says it, when she says, give me here, she's saying, here, in this place where we are. In other words, immediately. Give me this now, here. That's, that's what she is, she's asking for. Now, Mark also brings out that urgency of the insistence that this be done immediately. And so we know that this was at the direction of Herodias, and Herodias was obviously a woman of opportunity. Um, it seems that she saw Antipas as being more ambitious and more motivated than his brother Philip. And so her prospects improved greatly by being attached to him rather than 
to Philip. And here she shows this shrewdness again by seizing this opportunity and demanding that it be done immediately. In other words, she recognizes this opportunity. And rather than put it off and and it may not be done at all, she knows that she has to insist that this is done now. Well, verse number 9, And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, for the oath's sake and them which sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given her. So the word that's used here is telling us that Herod was grieved by this. And there, it's, it was probably quite a conflict for him. Um, he, again, he didn't want to risk um, executing John the Baptist because of public opinion. Um, and so he, has sort of, he sort of put himself in a, in a corner um, and maybe there was even some little bit, some small fraction of a restraint in him, just a little catch, that he just didn't really want to see John the Baptist killed. But this language ex- ex- indicates he experienced intense sorrow. But he also recognized the position that he was in. And essentially, he had to follow through in order to save face, as it were. And he gave the order for it to be done. Verse 10 says, and he sent and beheaded John in the prison. So he sent the executioner to go and kill John. And of course, there was no fair trial as such. Uh, I I don't even uh, know, and I don't think historically there's any record of any criminal charges ever actually being um, made against John. So really when we look at this, this is more of a murder. It's it's a murder with government authorization than it is really a judicial execution. The life of the greatest prophet was ended by beheading to satisfy a foolish and hasty vow that was made at a drunken party with men inflamed by lewd dancing. So think about just how little that the world really values human life and a soul. In order to save himself embarrassment and possible political repercussions the life of the greatest prophet born among women as Jesus said was ended verse 11 says and his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel and she brought it to her mother so so John's head was put onto a platter it was brought to um, Salome and then she takes it to Herodias, and I, I guess sort of like some, some kind of a hunting trophy um, to her mother Herodias. And in verse 12 ends this account, And his disciples came and took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. So the account ends with some of John's disciples taking his body, giving him a proper burial, and... When they finish with this, it says they go and tell Jesus what happened. Now, we don't know 
exactly what they said or or whether this was just information perhaps it was also a warning um it's it's hard to say you know this this but at least they went and they told him about this and this certainly marks um another progression in terms of rejection of jesus and the kingdom well when we think about jesus and john there are a lot of parallels between the stories of them both. Their births were prophesied beforehand and attended by miraculous happenings. They were both recognized as prophets and their ministries were popular, at least for a time. They were also both hated by powerful people and were plotted against. They were both arrested. They were both executed by government officials who um, were somewhat hesitant, but nevertheless were swayed to action by public pressure. And they were both buried by disciples. And then, as we read in this account, John was thought to be risen from the dead, and Jesus really did rise from the dead. So there are certainly a lot of parallels between John and Jesus. And again, this account sort of ties off the, the story of, of John. He really doesn't figure um, after this in the gospel. But it is also a foreshadowing of what is to come in the life and ministry of Jesus. John was a continuation of Israel's history of rejecting and killing prophets that had been sent to them. And the death of John is also serves as a warning to the apostles. If you recall, back in chapter 10, Jesus had warned his apostles about imprisonment, verses 17 to 20, and death, verses 21 and 28, back in chapter 10. So this also looks ahead to this crucial question of the identity of Jesus. And that's going to come up again and again as we proceed through Matthew's gospel. Now, when we think about events that have happened so long ago, but yet they are recorded for us. And this word, this this is the record that God has given us of his son, Jesus Christ. And one of the one of the things that we see in these gospel narratives is that there can be no neutrality when it comes to Jesus Christ. He either is the Son of God or he is not. And if you think that he is not, then you will die in your sins. You will come to judgment like Herodias, like Herod Antipas, and, and even Herod Antipas, who later helped Pilate to kill Jesus, and, and all of the others who reject. If you believe that he is the Son of God, well, then the, the message is, is much the same. Repent of your sins. Trust him for salvation from wrath to come, and you will be given the gift of eternal life. But what you can't do is simply remain neutral. You you will either receive or reject Jesus Christ 
for who he is. <laughs>